Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We'll be glad to put a, a Bible in your hand. But we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1, where we left off, starting in verse 5. Starting in verse 5. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. You can keep it. If you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, simply hold on to that one. Put it in your car and drive home with it. It is yours if you want it. Uh, we want people to have the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting with verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive, to, uh, attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word of your Lord commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, uh, though some of you were cast out from the farthest parts of heaven, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive in your prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Lord, we pray again that you would anoint this Bible study, anoint me for your service, and open the eyes and ears of each and every one of us for your glory and our transformation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, in the opening scene last week, we saw Nehemiah's question, and his response was that of weeping and mourning and sadness. But it doesn't end there, does it? No, that moves him. Do broken lives and conditions move us? Do the brokenness around, do those things move us? He's moved to a fervent prayer. Not a quickly kind of thing like, well, I said I'd pray, so I did. You ever done that? I, I, oh, oh, I said I'd pray five, five hours ago. I better stop and say that one-minute prayer. And someone has a desperate situation. And we say that one little minute prayer. No, no, he doesn't do that here. This is an interceding type prayer. This is a depth of prayer. And not just a prayer, but prayer and fasting. Really? Fasting? Not eating? Giving up food uh, just to talk to God? Andrew Murray said, prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is letting go of all that is seen and temporal. Fasting helps express, deepen, confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. You know, you can't fake genuine, right? We've talked about this a lot. I didn't coin it. Pastor Joe Foch did, or he got it from somebody. But Nehemiah's burden was genuine, wasn't it? Fasting and prayer, mourning for days, weeping for days. I, I don't, I've never been broken like that. Have you? I mean, I'm talking about days of weeping and mourning. Some of you may have been. I think God wants to soften all of us far more than we've ever been before. He wants to take us to new places. He wants us to have the genuineness that Nehemiah had. But this morning, we want to look at this prayer. Last week, we saw him respond with this deep, groaning in his spirit, if you will. And here we want to take a look at exactly what happens with this prayer. What is the prayer that he prays? Uh, you, and my, you and me, we don't have most of our prayers recorded, do we? But this is recorded. We actually see the heart of this prayer, uh, the depth behind the prayer, the spirit behind the prayer. And what, as we're taking notes, the first thing we want to look at starts in verse 5, is what I've titled, and by the way, if you're taking notes, poured out in prayer is the title of our uh, message this morning, our study. But the first thing we look at, three things, is approaching. How do we approach God in prayer? 
Most people, now you think uh, about approaching God, you're talking about the one who created everything, the one who has the power over the universe. It says in verse 5, I pray, Lord God of heaven. I don't think we can really grasp sometimes how big, awesome, amazing God is. You know, just just uh, get a telescope out and start looking at the galaxies for a little bit and just try and comprehend the massive expanse of the universe. But most people, they would approach a king, a president, a prime minister, a monarch, a ruler, or a dignitary. Most people would approach that kind of leader with some level of respect and humility. Wouldn't you agree? Police officers, judges. Now, most people, at least the wise ones anyway, approach their boss with a healthy level of humility and respect. Amen? Most people. If you like getting raises and you like promotions and things like that, paychecks, you probably do that. And the respect and decorum usually rises when it's your boss's boss. And then your boss's boss's boss, and so on. Why? Because people have a clear understanding of the authority, and they want to find favor, don't they? They want to have, they want to have favor with those that are employing them. They want that favor. They want the approval. They want their paycheck signed. Many people, however, approach God with a casual attitude that reveals either their ignorance of God or their arrogance towards God. It's kind of, yeah, it, it, you've heard people refer to him as the man upstairs. I'm only given that term because people say it. I, I'm not, I've never referred to God in that manner, at least not since salvation anyway. Uh, but God is holy. He is holy and he's mighty beyond our comprehension. None of us can comprehend the majesty of God, the depth of God, the glory of God. He's worthy of our Complete reverence. Complete reverence. Moses was told to take off his what? Yeah. He didn't really have shoes, but you know what I mean. You know, they take off them sandals. Uh, he didn't have Nikes or Adidas or anything like that, but he had to take off what he, whatever he was wearing. God says you're on holy ground. Holy ground is whatever God says is holy. Anywhere God shows up is holy. We're commanded by Scripture to fear the Lord. And we understand, we've talked a lot about this in the last year, fear of the Lord is an awe. It's a respect for God. Now, it's true that those who belong to the Lord through salvation in Jesus, we now know God as our what? Father. Jesus said, hey, when you pray, pray this, our Father. We know God as our Father. And yet, we're still to, he said, hallow his name, didn't he? Say, well, if he's our Father, we don't really need to hallow his name anymore. No, Jesus said, the two are inseparable. His relationship as our Father, we still are to hallow or to worship His name. We're never to forget His holiness and His authority. Jesus said we pray His what? His kingdom would come. His will be, not our will, His will be done. And Nehemiah approaches God with this bowing of his heart to the sovereignty of God. He's bowing to God's sovereignty, and so should we, right? We should be bowing to the sovereignty of God. As we note the first two words out of Nehemiah's mouth, let's take a look again in verse 5 as he starts this prayer. He says, I pray. I pray. Yes, they obviously convey the very first words of the prayer, but don't you think they might also represent how Nehemiah lived? You can have a t shirt that says, I pray, right? I pray. That's a good bet, I think, looking at Nehemiah. I think it's a good bet that he was a man of prayer because God does impossible things only through people of prayer. Only through people of prayer. People that don't have a prayer life, God is not going to do a mighty work in their life. Jesus said the only way certain things would ever happen was through prayer and fasting. Certain things would never happen apart from prayer and fasting. We may not want to hear that, but that's the reality. Certain things are going to require that we pray and fast. But these two words, I pray, they're not a statement of religious pride. Of course, he's talking to God, not talking to people anyway. And as we'll see throughout this entire prayer 
and in the step of faith that he'll take because of this prayer, this prayer is a statement of need. It's a statement of dependence. It's a statement of reliance upon God. I don't know about you, but I pray because I desperately need God. How about you? I pray because I can't accomplish anything in my own strength. I can't preach this message in my own strength. I certainly wouldn't have any eternal value or even value for today without the help of the Holy Spirit. I can't do anything in the ministry, nor can I be a good husband, father, son, brother, neighbor, without the help of God. The older I get, the more I realize I really bring nothing to the table. Amen. Nothing. Amen. Nehemiah has come to that place. He realized, I don't bring anything to the table, Lord. He's, he's desperately crying, God, you have to do something here because certainly it's been over nearly 100 years and nothing's happened. And he's like, who am I? I'm just the king's cupbearer, which was a significant job. We'll get to that next week. But yet it wasn't enough to rebuild walls. And you might have in your life, and you might see around you walls that need to be rebuilt, and you're like, who is going to do this? And God says, maybe your prayers is the entry point. Could it be said of you, would it be said of you, would you say of yourself, in capital letters, I pray? I mean, really, if you were telling, with Jesus standing right there, right there, you're telling everybody, hey, I have... Well, I don't really have a prayer life because Jesus is standing here. I was about to say, I have a prayer life. But then I realized he slid up beside me. <laughs> Would it be said that you pray the same way you breathe and sleep and work? See, prayer is an essential and a continual part of our life. And that's what Jesus modeled in his life. It's what he taught the apostles. And as he prays here, we see that Nehemiah refers to both the glory and greatness of God. He says, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. God is to be hallowed. But he also talks about this personal relationship with God because he says here, those who love you in verse 5. Those who love you. Uh, it's not a religion. It's a relationship with the Lord. Do you believe about God or do you love God? Amen. Amen. Oh, yeah, I believe the stuff about God. I, I like to listen to Christian radio. I like to uh, tell people uh, theological truths. But this isn't what Nehemiah says. He says, those that love you. Would it be said of you that you love God? When's the last time you told God you loved him? God, I love you. By the way, just saying that, God, I love you, will actually impact the way you pray. You can't say I love you to someone and not be impacted by, hold on, do I? You start telling your kids you love them, you're going to start acting like you love them. You start telling your spouse you love them, you're going to start acting like you love them. You start loving your neighbors, say, Lord, I love my neighbors, you're going to start praying for your neighbors. Start loving them. He says, those who keep your commands, but those who love you. And by the way, those who Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. They're not burdensome. He's written them on the tablets of our hearts. But we're reminded it's imperative to be in relationship with God. It's a love and surrender to God. And in that relationship, we approach the power and the majesty of his throne. That's a big deal because you're like, how do we approach the throne of God? Well, there has to be relationship. It has to be birthed by the blood of Jesus. A relationship made possible only by God's grace, his amazing grace, but it's realized in our life through surrender and repentance. I walked forward in an aisle 23 years ago, gave my life to Christ, my wife and I on the same day. From that point, we've had a relationship with the Lord, and now when I pray, it's not just some flippant thing or some uh, just kind of religious activity. I really have a relationship. Jesus is my advocate with the Father. I have a mediator with God. How about you? a mediator with the Lord. The only true relationship is that loving relationship with God that is birthed by Jesus. And when that happens, then we have a deep reverence for God. Yes, we have a love for God, but we also have a reverence and an awe for God, which we see here. 
And it's a love and respect for God that simultaneously allows us to approach the throne with a, and this is a strange dichotomy in a way, we approach the throne with a humble confidence. A humble confidence. That may seem to be contradictive, but if you think about it, think about your own kids. If you, if you are a godly parent and you've established the right kind of authority in the home, they, they know that you are in charge, but yet there's a loving relationship. They're able to freely come and share anything with you, pop up on your lap, talk to you, laugh with you. But they also know raising their voice at you and giving you demands is not going to happen, right? That's a healthy relationship. On the one hand, love, laughter, family, anything you want to share, but you're not telling mom and dad what to do. And I don't approach God saying, God, here's what. I know. It's a humble confidence that he's going to hear, but it's going to be in the Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that a father-child relationship is given. We have this father relationship. He's the father, we're the child. We have a confidence of his love for us. We're confident that he loves us. And our awe and respect for his holiness, it grows over time, doesn't it? It grows. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of what? Grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. And we all have those times where we have a need of help. In Nehemiah, coming boldly but humbly before the Lord, he first proclaims God's witness of his own character. Where he says here, uh, please let your ear be attentive. And Lord, you show, uh, oh, by the way, in the middle there, where he says, you show your covenant and mercy. That's part of the character of God. Mercy. That's the character of the Lord that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10, showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments, which, by the way, he almost verbatim quotes right here. I'm sure he probably had Deuteronomy 5.10 in mind and other passages like that that were already written in the law. But as we pray to God, we approach him in his character, his character of holiness, his character of mercy. And as we come before the Lord, we can have that confidence. It's a quiet confidence. It's a humble, say, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. But I'm in awe, and I'm willing to take off my shoes, sometimes literally, but always metaphorically, right? Because I'm in holy ground. Now, we see how he approached. Let's take a look at what he begins to admit in verses 6 through 8. If you're taking notes, admitting, starting in verse 6. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Boy, don't you want God to hear your prayers? Yes. Not just bounce off the ceiling. You know, God, uh, God's eyes do see everything, and his ears hear everything. But this is that, that God would hear it in a way that he is saying, you are coming with the right heart attitude, and I am going to listen and respond. In other words, God would hear it and, and, and not do one of these to us, the hand to the face kind of thing. He does do that. He gives grace to the humble, but he does what? Resist the proud, the proud in heart. God, God, of course, God knows everything that's said, but he's not listening to the prayers of arrogance or apathy or anything like that. Nehemiah comes, and he begins with admission and confession. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you day and night. This was a continuous prayer. Is there some prayers you've been praying day and night? There's some prayers that the longer you've been saved, you can wake up for two minutes in the middle of the night and pray it and fall right back asleep. If you know the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. You'll wake up and it's boom, it's there. And it's the spirit that ushers that right to our mind and we're like half awake. We pray it. He prays day and night. Every time he he's thinking constantly, he's like, Lord, I'm bringing this back before you. I'm bringing it before you. I'm bringing it before you again and again and again. But he begins here, Lord, hear my prayer. And I confess 
middle of the verse, the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. He's acknowledging that the desperate state of the people in Jerusalem is not the result of God failing them, but of sin, of apathy and rebellion. Now, certainly there are times when great trials, when afflictions we just don't understand, they don't seem to make any sense. They come upon people who are absolutely surrendered to God and, in fact, are living for God. Not perfectly, but faithfully and with sincerity. Now, this is found all through the Scriptures. It's the testimony of many of the persevering saints. Jesus himself was hated, wasn't he? Hated and killed, even though he was perfect, even though he was sinless. He had only loved and healed people. And yet, he endured great affliction. So we know that happens sometimes. So if you're saying, well, uh, it's all that... You ever had someone say, well, it may be because there's sin in your life. It may be, but it may not be. It very well may be that, that you're being buffeted by the enemy if you're living for the Lord. But most often, the depths of despair and the broken situations we see all around us. This is what we're praying for revival most often they can be traced back at some point to a rejection of God. Not always the case, again, with people that are serving the Lord, but if we see around us society falling apart and things like that, it's often a rejection of God. Now, certainly innocent people suffer. Innocent children suffer. But sin, it never affects just the person who originally started it, right? It always has an unfortunate ripple effect that hits innocent lives as well. The ring of impact just keeps going out, doesn't it? And Nehemiah understood that. He knew that the sins of some would expand and, and many people uh, are left in the wake. No, the ring of impact impacts well beyond those who originally played the uh, defining role in a certain sin or, or rebellion. But he knows that unless there's a turning to God, this isn't going to change. This is only going to get worse. Nehemiah, he knows the pain of his people. He knows that his nation is no longer sovereign. Can you imagine America no longer being a sovereign nation? He knows that the carrying away of the ten northern tribes, which took place uh, when Assyria attacked, they were the first of the tribes to, to be uh, sent into captivity, and then the subsequent Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, and then after that, the 70 years of captivity, he knows these wounds are still deep and fresh. Nehemiah knows that God warned of this way before. He warned Moses of it. He warned Joshua of it. He said, if they choose this kind of sin, these will be the consequences. He gave centuries and many cycles of mercy. Many cycles of mercy. Many sent, sent prophets, sent judges, sent godly kings. He fully understands that even as some have now returned to Judah, which is great, which is a blessing, many more, many more were still happily settled in foreign lands and didn't even want to go home, didn't want to go back to Israel, didn't want to go back to the land of Judah. Many, though, would want to go home but couldn't because many still were in captivity. Men were, many were living in fear. Many were living in despair. Many were living in misery, and particularly there in the land that God had promised Abraham, there in Judah where Jerusalem was. Even worse than the distress and the reproach of those in Jerusalem was that some that were there that had gone back still were far, far off from God. They still hadn't come back to God. They were there physically, but not there spiritually. Does that sound like some in the church? They're there physically, but they're not there spiritually. The very sin and rebellion that led to such great judgment was still being embraced by some. In other words, God had sent wave after wave of mercy, but he also sent some mighty waves, tsunamis of judgment. And even after all that judgment, many people still said, I still want the idols. I still want the pleasures. I still want the sin. Now, maybe not with the same open idolatry, but their love for God was not what it should be. 
It wasn't the love for God that was so evident in Joseph, in Moses, in Joshua, in Samuel, in David. No, no, that, that type of relationship was a distant memory for many of their offspring who had now instead said, we just want just enough of God that he just doesn't bother us. Yes, there had still been small pockets of revival under Ezra, for example, in the 13 years prior. But for the most part, neither judgment nor mercy had convinced Israel to repent. Think about that. What a statement. Neither judgment nor mercy had convinced most of them to say, God, I'm all in. Here's my life. Let it be. Take me. Use me. Take up, my, take up the cross. That, for the most part, neither judgment or mercy had convinced most people to repent. And I believe, Nehemiah, that's breaking his heart as much as the broken walls. What do you think? So Nehemiah is acknowledging. He is confessing, which confessing means to agree with God, that it is sin, not bad luck, not the fault of Babylon, not the fault of Persia, not the unfairness of God that has resulted in this continuous state of ruin and this distance from God. He's saying, Lord, it's our own hearts. That's what he's saying. Lord, it's us. Notice that Nehemiah doesn't condemn his nation. He doesn't pronounce judgment on his nation. You say, well, he just said that we've done a lot of sin. That is not pronouncing judgment. That's stating facts. After all, he's serving God. Nehemiah could say, you know what? I love God. I'm serving God. <laughs> if they want to do that, that's their problem. I have a good job. I work for the king, the most powerful king on earth. I work for the king of Persia. If they want to be distant from God, that's their deal. I'm staying right here. I'll serve God. He loves me. I'll spend eternity with him. If they want to do what they want to do, no, he doesn't have that heart. He doesn't have this flippancy, but he's not condemning them either. He's not saying, Lord, send down fire on them for their rebellion. No, his heart breaks for them. He cares. He's disturbed by the physical condition, but even more by the spiritual condition. Yet he's not praying, Lord, unleash greater consequences. You showed them a lot of wrath, show them even more. He's not saying that. We're not praying that for our country. When I pray for revival, I'm not praying, and Lord, the really bad people. You know who I'm talking about, Lord. The really bad ones. I hope they can't get out of bed tomorrow, right? No, he's simply confessing and agreeing with God that the core issue is sin. That's what he's saying. He's agreeing with God. He's saying, Lord, I see it. The issue here is not broken down walls. That's a symptom. The issue is sin. I know that sin isn't a popular word in our... Do you know uh, the use of sin? You can do... A, uh, there's a Google search that scans all the books of uh, the last 200 years, and the use of sin in literature has gone way down. Did you know it's still mentioned the exact same times in the Bible than it was if you'd read it 200 years ago? It has not moved. God says the core issue is always... Why do you think Jesus came? The core issue is sin, right? And Nehemiah is saying the core issue here, he's not condemning his nation, he's simply confessing and agreeing that habitual resistance is the issue. Habitual resistance to God. He's not making excuses. He's not sticking his head in the sand. But he's agreeing with God on sin. He's agreeing with God on sin, on the offensiveness to God personally. He says, we have sinned against you. He says, we've sinned against you, God, Yahweh. And he even cites the warnings of God. Look at verse 8. He says uh, in verse 8, uh, back to verse 7 for one second, we've acted very corruptly and have not kept the commandments, this is the habitual resistance, nor the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. He's going way back in time. Remember, I pray that you commanded your servant Moses, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Wow. He's saying, God, this is not a shock in a sense because you said exactly what you would do. You said if we rebel and we resist and we choose sin, you would scatter us. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. 
all the tribes have been scattered. Brother and sister, in our lives, are we making excuses? Nehemiah didn't make excuses. Are we making excuses? Are we ignoring sin and lukewarm living? Or are we going to God in prayer with honest admission and confession to agree with God and say, Lord, I see what your word has asked me to do. I haven't shared my faith in who knows how long. I don't pray for anyone. I pray for my own needs, and that's about it. That's not intercession. It's a good start, but we have to grow beyond that. Lord, are we growing in the grace? Are we walking in the Holy Spirit? Or can we be honest and say, Lord, I'm dry, and I don't even care that I'm dry. That's an honest That's what Nehemiah was doing. He's being honest with God. By the way, we're not getting anywhere playing games with God in our prayers. It's not like we, we can shadow box with the Almighty, right? He goes all the way back to the start. He mentions Moses, not the start of, uh, the, obviously, the nation's birth with Abraham. But Moses is where the law was given. He says, to, you gave to your servant Moses the ordinances, verse 7. He mentions Moses again in verse 8. It goes way back to the start of the nation. That's when the nation really was birthed. They were slaves, but then they became free. They became a nation. Promised land later would be when Joshua brings them into the promised land. But he goes back, and sometimes sins from way, way, way back have to be acknowledged. When possible, even made right. Whether personally or collectively. This was reflected in Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He didn't just say, hey, I did a lot of stuff. He made things right, didn't he? And when we can, we should. But it starts with prayer. When praying for revival in our own nation, we can and we should absolutely confess even the sins of our forefathers. Nehemiah did it. He said, me, he said the sins of me and my father's house, verse 6. By the way, when he says father's house, he's not just speaking of his father. He's speaking generationally. Going way back, he said, Lord, we're guilty for a long time here. And I think a lot of what's happening in America today is not just things that, well, it's all in the last 20 years. No, it goes further back than that. The sin is further back. We, you know, slavery and racism, the introduction and uh, just flat-out condoning of abortion, fostering of, fostering, our government fostering no-fault divorce, are just a few of the disastrous decisions that have come upon our nation. And yes, not everyone was guilty of choosing that, but everyone pays a price for that. Amen? Amen. Everyone does. And by the way, these things are still having a massive ripple effect in, in any way you want to look at society. And it's devastating families and social construct and peace and relationships in our nation today, there's very few leaders that will stand up and proclaim what the Bible actually says. And while the entertainment industry and our business leaders and the education establishment and many political leaders and, frankly, much of society itself has no issue with the prevalence of pride, pornography, idolatry, among many other observable issues... As long as the economy is strong and personal pleasure is maintained, millions would say, so what? So what? Doesn't affect me. My job's still good. My cable still works. The cars are still running. Everything's fine. Nehemiah didn't see it that way, folks. He didn't see it that way. Know for certain, just as it was with ancient Egypt, just as it was with ancient Israel, just as it was with ancient Rome, God is neither unaware nor unconcerned about these things. He's aware, he's concerned, and he's already moving in the spiritual realm. Amen? And in the church, if there's an absence of prayer, and there is, if there's no time for the word, and in many in the church, there's not. If there's an apathy towards the command of Jesus to share the gospel and to make disciples, if there's an apathy towards these things or total ignoring of it, if the church becomes basically the same, of the, the same as the world minus the big sins. that make sense? The same as the world minus the big sins. We cut all the big sins out, but the rest of the way, we're the same. I can assure you, 
God is neither unaware nor unconcerned. And he's going to raise up some Nehemiahs. Amen? Amen. Nehemiah was aware of these things. He knew the heart of God. He knew that God saw all this. He knew the blatant rebellion as well as the half-hearted obedience to God. He saw it. He saw it all the time. He knew that it breaks the heart of God. He knew uh, and saw well the religious fig leaves that people were putting on. And because he saw it all, he presented it all to God. He said, Lord, this is it. I'm being honest. This is where we're really at. And notice he didn't present and confess the sins as their sins. He doesn't do that. No, he put his own name in the admission, doesn't he? He says, I have sinned. Me. He puts himself in there. I and your sir, all of us. He said, you know, I pray. He starts out, the, the sins of your children in Israel, both my father's house and I have sinned. Hmm. His prayer of confession was personal. It was inclusive. It was not a they need to repent sin. It was a we need to repent sin. Amen? There is none righteous, no, not one. That's why we can never pray them, them, them. It's us. Nehemiah understood that. Isaiah understood it as well. In Isaiah 6, 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was a faithful servant of God, and he said, I'm unclean. Nehemiah, faithful servant of God, he said, I've sinned. You might be faithful to God, but when you pray for things that break God's heart, put your name in the list too, because it belongs in the list. We all are guilty. When praying for our family and our community, our nation, our church, it's not a them prayer, it's a we prayer. Even if you're walking in fellowship with the Lord, it's a we prayer. It's we because we're not sinless, only Jesus is. And he wants us to be broken over sin. He wants us to not see it from a distance, but to also know that it's touching us even on our best days. Amen? Let's take a look at the last point here, appealing, verses 8 through 11. We looked at approaching. We looked at admitting. Again, this is our attitude of coming to God. Nehemiah gives us, if you will, an outline of approaching to God. If you want God to hear your prayer, Nehemiah has given a blueprint Say, if you approach God in this manner, guess what? His ears are listening. He's like, I want to bestow blessing on you, but come to me in the right manner. Appealing. Starting verse 8 there, we've already looked at some of verse 8, but the, uh, he moves on. God's warning, I'll scatter you among the nations, but you've got to love verse 9. Verse 9 is a, whoo, thank goodness for verse 9 verse. But if you return to me, Keep my commandments and do them. Though some of you are cast out to the farthest parts of heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. God says, I will bring you back if you're going to be honest, if you're going to confess, if you're going to approach me as a holy God. Nehemiah, he knows the power and holiness of God. He knows the problem and the consequence of sin, but he also knows the grace and mercy of God. In Numbers 14, 18, it says, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. I don't think we have any comprehension of the grace and mercy of God. I've tried to think on it for years, and I still can't. I still have a two-year-old's comprehension of it, spiritually speaking. If God showed us all the things he's overlooked, the second and the 10,000th chances he's given us, if he showed us the extravagance of his patience, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, and he's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As Romans 5, 20 says, but where sin abounded, grace more abounded. Isn't that good to know? Because I have had sin abound in my life, not anymore, but I mean in the, in the course of my life, I look back, and even post-salvation, there's still things I say, will I ever stop doing this or having this as a roadblock? And God is patient, and he continues to give grace, and he continues to forgive. But it starts with us being honest before him. 
And Nehemiah appeals to God on the basis of his love, on the basis of his kindness, on his grace to forgive. He says, Lord, I know, because you said to Moses, if they do all that, but if they return, you would be, you would be gracious. You can quote God, his own scriptures, back to him, but make sure you're quoting them with the right humble approach, right? You know, the person who's living in sin, saying, it says right here, God, yeah, yeah, did you read this? God would say, yeah, and I looked at your life. And I've got a few verses to show you, right? That's, that's, how, that's how the Holy Spirit would speak to us. But if we come humbly and say, Lord, I, I, I've failed. I've come back. And you are a gracious God. He, he'll forgive anybody in this room of anything. Verse 10, now these are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power. See, a remnant's already been redeemed. Remember his brother Hanani and the men that came and gave the report? They're faithful followers of the Lord. And there's others, Ezra. Others, there is a remnant. There's always a remnant, by the way. God always has a small group that are faithful to him. Not perfect, but they're clinging to the Lord. And they're in every country on planet Earth. There's always a faithful remnant. And he said, Lord, you brought a few of us back, but we want to see the few become many. Don't you want to see God save all the people in your family? Well, as long as I got my salvation, I'm cool. Well, you know, it's a lot of, no, no, you want to see your cousins and parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. and Don't you want to see all your neighbors know the Lord? Yes. Even the ones you don't get along with as well? You know, all that stuff. You got, all of them. They all matter to God. And so he's, there's a remnant here. And Nehemiah could say, you know, you've kept me alive, Lord. And you've kept me looking to you. But, Lord, I want you to do a work of revival and renewal and rebuilding that hasn't taken place in a hundred years. Something that, that, that no one's ever seen before. Something that's long overdue. Don't you think revival is long overdue? I hope our praying for revival is not just some weekly routine that I ask you to be a part of every Sunday morning, but it's really not something you're praying for. I hope that you are praying for it. And if you haven't been, start now. Just be honest. Hey, Lord, I haven't been praying that, but I'm going to start. That's a New Year's thing you can do. Just add it to your life. Say, Lord, I'm going to pray for revival. But always include yourself. Because it's a we prayer. I hope it's something you're, you're praying. I hope you make it personal. That we truly want to see the purity of God and the power of God and the peace of God in our lives and in our efforts. Because it's hard serving Jesus. We need his help, don't we? It's not easy to serve the Lord. If you're looking for something easy, you've come to the wrong faith. <laughs> it's not easy to serve the Lord. You need the Holy Spirit. You need his help. You need his power. I'd have given up a thousand times by now if it wasn't for the Lord. But he gives us what's called the perseverance of the saints. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah has experienced that, but he wants to see that Go beyond. He said, Lord, I want to see the remnant grow. I want to see revival. You said if we would repent that you would do this work. You'd bring us back. And look, look in verse 9. It says, for what? I have chosen a dwelling place for what? For my name. Do you know everything God does for you and me is never really about us? It's for the glory of his name. When we get to heaven, it's all going to be about him. He's not going to parade us around and say, look at the great things Tim did. No. He's going to put Jesus at the center, and everyone's going to worship him and him alone. But he does want to bring restoration to us in the process. God wants to see in our prayer life that we truly desire the salvation of souls, that we know for the Lord's name that, that our kids would follow the Lord, right? That our grandkids the healing of broken lives. This is the heart of Nehemiah, and this is what he's appealing to God. He said, Lord, you can do this. You said you would do it if we repent. You can do it. I'm praying that you will do it. Please hear my prayer. I mean, he's basically saying, please, 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 a bunch of times, isn't he? Be attentive, be attentive, be attentive. That's the same way. Hear my prayer. That's a pleading. If you ever have pled with God, it's okay. You're in good company. Nehemiah was too. Look at the words in his heart as he closes this prayer. It reflects his heart and no doubt his brother Han and I and others 
longing to see God bring healing. As he says in verse 10, now these are your servants, plural. And I believe this is speaking of Hanani and the men that have brought the report, the faithful remnant there in uh, Persia with Nehemiah and the faithful remnant back in Jerusalem. So you have a couple of faithful remnants. They're connected by the Spirit. They don't have email and text and stuff like that. They see each other only when someone makes a long journey. But you've got these two groups, and collectively, uh, the faithful remnant in both places are the plural here of servants, your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So God's he's, he's acknowledging, Lord, you've kept a few of us alive and alive in you and faithful to you. Verse 11, O Lord, I pray. Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants, plural, again, his brother and the others, who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. That would be the king when we get to chapter 2 because uh, he's a little concerned how things could go if he asked the king to leave. But here he is, and we see the heart of this prayer, and it reflects his reflects these other men. He mentions himself. He pleads with God to prosper him, but not for his personal wants, but as a vessel for the will of God and the purpose of God. If you pray, God, prosper me in this ministry. If you pray, God, prosper me in this marriage. Prosper me as a parent. Prosper me as a young person in our house or in, or in college or in my studies or in schoolwork. If our prayer is, Lord, prosper me that you would be glorified, that's a prayer God is going to bless. If it's prosper me because I want more recognition, I want more money, I want more status, I want more, 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 that's not a prayer God is listening to. Amen? Amen. Nehemiah's prayer is he's saying, prosper me because souls are at stake. Lives are at stake. I need success. I need spiritual success. That's what we're actually praying. Lord, pray that we move through darkness and come through to the other side. That's what he's praying. That's the prosper he's talking about. He's not saying, I want to be a millionaire so everyone can look at my brand new Lexus. That's not what he's praying. Let your servant prosper this day and grant mercy. He's like, my prospering is, in a way, Lord, help me survive. How about that for a prosper prayer? In James chapter 4, verse 3, it says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. You want to spend it on your pleasures. God says, some of your prayers are not about others and certainly not about uh, the name of God. Nehemiah, he needed the favor of the king. So, not, he didn't want the favor of the king so he could amass a personal fortune and build his name and have more Twitter followers. They didn't have Twitter then, but you know what I mean. But that God would use him to rebuild out of the ashes lives and a people that would return to God. Is that your prayer? Is that your prayer? Lord, prosper me that our kids would never go after the world. Prosper our spiritual walk that they would never want the things of the world. Prosper this church that we would see more people saved and, and they become disciples of Jesus. That we would see marriages healed. That we would see lives transformed. That's the kind of prospering God wants. That's the harvest he wants to pour out the rains of revival on. Amen? These are the prayers that God will answer. And they have to be pure. They have to be humble. They have to be honest and aligned with the heart of God. Would you agree with me that every bit of Nehemiah's prayer manifests that approach? It was, it was fervent with fasting. It was humble. It was honest, both for him and for the people. And it was aligned with the heart of God. And guess what we're going to see in chapter 2? He does get favor. I pray God gives you guys favor in this new year. And me too. I desperately need it in some areas, and I'm sure you desperately need it in some areas too. But are we praying it for his glory and other people, or is it just about us? If it's not about us and it's about him and other people, we're going to see that favor. Amen? Pull up my last slide there, because I'm just reminding you guys to continue to pray. 
we talked about last week, Nehemiah was going to do a work that was going to be accomplished in 52 days. Something that had not been accomplished, had been unsuccessfully tried and attempted for over 100 years, and God is going to bless supernaturally and say in 52 days you're going to do what no one could do in almost 100 years. What could God do in your life, in my life, in this church, people you're praying for, in these 52 days, which would take us to March the 7th, or the 52 weeks of this year? I'd be happy with either. How about you? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you are a faithful God, that you are a compassionate God. You give mercy to thousands, not that we deserve it, but you are gracious and kind. And Lord, even though we, if we're honest, we, we say, Lord, forgive us of our rebellion, sometimes our habitual resistance, our excuses. And Lord, please cleanse us. Forgive us, renew us, refresh us. And Lord, in every way, whether it's lukewarm, whether it's half-hearted, whether it's just a flat-out uh, idolatry, whatever it may be, Lord, you are willing to forgive and to heal and, Lord, put on clean, fresh robes for each and every person here. Lord, Nehemiah's prayer, we want to reflect it in our own life. We want to be honest with you, humble but reverent before you. And Lord, acknowledging it with a quiet confidence that you're willing to do even more than we could ask, think, or imagine. And we pray this morning that, uh, Lord, you would do this work in these next 52 days, and which have already begun, these 52 weeks, Lord, you'd, you'd give us favor. You'd bless us. You'd answer prayers we've been praying for weeks or months. But Lord, not for us, but for your glory and for the transformation of lives. And in the process, Lord, I know we'll see joy and peace, and we thank you for that. Yes. Lord, we believe in advance that you're going to do these things. Yes. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You know